let me introduce you to inspiring entrepreneurs. Hi there, my name is Ben Gothard. My mission is to interview incredible entrepreneurs who are changing the world and present their stories to you, unscripted and unedited. From billionaires to Forbes 30 under 30 recipients to New York Times bestselling authors and much, much more, these people are living proof that nothing is impossible. Join me on this journey to learn from their experiences and become the person you're meant to be. Welcome to the Project Egg Show every morning at 8 a.m. Central. Eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Project Egg Show. I'm your host, Ben Gothard, and today we have the honor of speaking with Steve Snyder. How are you doing today, Steve? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks a lot. Glad awesome. to be here. Yeah, me too. Me too. So I want to jump right in and I want to know, what is your story? Boy, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> There's a lot of ways to, to go on that. Um, uh, you want me to start with my background or? From the very beginning. From the very beginning. Okay. Um, well, I was born in Pasadena, California. Uh, home of the Rose Bowl, uh, 1947. So it was a couple of years after World War II ended. Uh, actually, uh, went to school in nearby the town of San Marino, uh, California. Uh, went to college at UCLA. Um, my mother graduated from UCLA. Uh, when she was there, she was a, uh, a classmate of the legendary Jackie Robinson. And when I was there, I was a classmate of Lou Alcindor, Lou Alcindor. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, so that was kind of fun. And I graduated from UCLA uh, in uh, 1970. Uh, Vietnam War was going on at that time, so uh, I went in the uh, California Army National Guard for six years uh, from 70 to 76. Fortunately for me, uh, my unit wasn't called up, though, to, to, to go overseas. And then I got into uh, to sales. I had a 40-year career in sales and sales management. The last 36 years was with a company called Vision Service Plan, VSP, which is the nation's largest provider of vision care. It's a benefit that corporations offer their employees to cover eye exams, glasses, and contact lenses. And uh, I traveled quite a bit uh, all over the United States uh, when I was working with them uh, the last 25 years. Uh, pretty extensively, um, call on Fortune 500 companies trying to sell the, our program to them. And then I retired in 2009, uh, in August of 2009. So it's almost 10 years since I've been retired now. And uh, I, I was kind of a, a happy retiree, relaxing. But uh, that being retired, I had the time to really delve into my dad's war history in more detail. And my parents had kept a lot of material from the war years, and I just wanted to go through that information and kind of organize it to learn a few more details. At that time, I had no intention of writing a book. Um, but uh, uh, there were two items that were really significant uh, in the, that material that my parents had kept. One was a diary that my dad wrote while he was missing in action after being shot. His B-17 bomber was shot down over Belgium. And uh, that diary is absolutely riveting. It's in the book. Uh, and the, the other item that was really uh, significant were all the letters that my dad wrote to my mother while he was stationed in England. And reading those was just fascinating. He was very candid in what he wrote in the letters. He wrote about what bombing missions were like, what uh, life was like on the air base in England, what life was like in London and uh, England at the time, escapades of uh, him and his crew and I just came, became fascinated with the story and it became my passion. And I started doing all this research. Um, and then finally, three years into my research, I just came to the conclusion that the story of my dad and his crew was so compelling 
and so unique that it needed to be told. People needed to read about it. So I decided to write a book. And now uh, I'm basically working full time again, <laughs> uh, uh, really doing pretty much the same thing I did at uh, Vision Service Plan. You know, I'm traveling all over the place. And instead of selling vision care, I'm, I'm promoting uh, a book. I go to air shows all around the United States. I do a lot of speaking, make PowerPoint presentations. It's basically changed my life. I live in Seal Beach, California, which is in Orange County, about uh, 40 miles south of LA, but also have a second home in Sedona, Arizona. So we kind of go back and forth, but I'm hardly at either one. I travel so much. So, so that's kind of my story. Um, it, uh, yeah, like I say, it's uh, taken me on a, on a journey and I love doing what I do. I'm also on the board of directors uh, and the immediate past president, actually, of the 306 Bomb Group Historical Association. Uh, my dad was in the 306 Bomb Group. And it's our mission to remember, honor, and educate, to remember the air war over Europe, uh, to honor the men who fought it, and to educate the public about it, especially younger generations. And that's really why I do what I do, is to keep mem the memory alive. You know. World War II was uh, over 70 years ago, and it's fading in people's memories. And uh, it's my uh, quest not to let that happen. <laughs> wow. And I, I totally agree with, with that quest. And I think it is such an important thing is to make sure that we don't forget what happened, that we don't lose touch with the history and and the facts of what really really happened back then yeah they were they were amazing man there was no other event in history that affected more people than world war ii uh, 60 million people died uh, millions more were wounded millions more were displaced and left homeless uh, it changed the course of the united states and the world forever and the brave young men who fought and died for freedom uh, in my opinion are without doubt the greatest generation and as we we're saying, their sacrifice must never be forgotten. Uh, my tagline actually is, it is our duty to remember. And uh, I live that every day. So let's talk a little bit more about your father's history. What were some of the, you know, the, the key points, the, the, the biggest lessons to be learned, the biggest pieces of history that happened during during his lifetime and, and his uh, career? Well, he was uh, born in Norfolk, Nebraska in uh, 1915. Then he moved to California uh, when he was 13 uh, with, with his family. And then, uh, you know, went through high school here. He was captain of the basketball team. And then uh, he didn't go to college. Uh, he started working uh, for Desmond's Clothing Company in uh, Los Angeles. And then uh, because of the first peacetime draft in the US history uh, implemented in the fall of 1940 by President Franklin Roosevelt, he uh, uh, and, you know, registered for the draft and then uh, went into the army in the, uh, in the spring of 1941. And he was stationed at Fort Lewis, Washington and initially didn't go in the Air Force. He went into the army uh, in the infantry and then uh, a few months later, he married my, my mother, Ruth Hempel. Uh, she was born and raised in Pasadena as well. Uh, it was shortly after she graduated from uh, UCLA. And then uh, a few months later, and on December 7th of 1941, Pearl Harbor was bombed by Japan. The United States was at war. Uh, so at that time, my mother was very uh, fearful. The, the future was very uncertain. So she went up to visit my dad in Washington over Christmas. And nine months later, uh, my oldest sister, Susan Ruth Snyder, was born. <laughs> and uh, at, the dad, at the time, my dad was kind of worried how he's going to support his new family. Here he has a bride on the uh, a new bride, a baby on the way. And he didn't think he could do that very well on a private's pay in the army. So that's when he decided to volunteer for the Air Force. So he really did it because uh, he, not really because he disliked the Army so much, 
It's that uh, he wanted to better provide for it for his family because uh, they paid better in the Air Force. And especially if he had made it through pilot school and become an officer, then he'd make uh, even even more money. So after a year in the infantry, uh, he uh, volunteered and went through uh, pre-flight training at Santa Ana Army Air Base in Southern California, and then went through the various stages of pilot training. And uh, in April of 1941, he graduated from advanced pilot training in Douglas, Arizona, where he received his commission as a second lieutenant in his, uh, his, uh, in his pilot's wings. Uh, there he went through transitional training where he learned how to fly a four-engine B-17 bomber and then went to operational crew training where the various members of the team came together. They learned to operate, uh, or members of the crew came together. They learned to operate as a team. And then once deemed ready, they were assigned overseas to the European Theater of Operations. And on October 21st, he and his crew reported to the 306 bomb group at Thurlie, England which I'll be at um, <clears throat> this month, this coming month in August, I'll be visiting again. It's located about 90 miles north of, uh, of, of London. And there he started uh, flying combat missions over uh, occupied uh, Europe and, uh, and Germany. The 306 bomb group was part of the 8th Air Force that was stationed in England uh, during World War II. And, their mission was to hit industrial and military targets to cripple Nazi Germany's ability to wage war. Um, they were nicknamed the Mighty Eighth by Gerald Astor, a noted historian, because of the number of planes they put up in the sky on these bombing missions, which numbered into the hundreds. And uh, on December 24th of 1944, 2,000 bombers hit Berlin. You know, I can't even imagine 2,000 bombers in the sky. You know, when the first planes are dropping their bombs, you know, the, their planes that haven't even taken off yet from, from England, that bomber stream was so, it was so long. And it was really tough flying combat missions in the 8th Air Force. Um, it was uh, really brutal and extremely dangerous. There were 23,000 men that died in the 8th Air Force, which was more than the entire Marine Corps fighting in the Pacific. And there was another 28,000 men who became prisoners of war after their bombers were knocked out of the sky, either by German fighters or anti-aircraft fire. Being a combat crewman in the 8th Air Force was the most dangerous duty assignment in the United States military during World War II. And it was dangerous from uh, the time they took off to the time they landed. Um, I, I can just I can go on forever here. I, don't, <laughs> I want to give you a, a chance to uh, you know a, uh, answer you know, or ask questions uh, rather than me just just going on and talking. But I, you know I can just go on about this because I guess maybe you can tell it is my passion. <laughs> well, you definitely might be a little passionate about it, but <laughs> this this is riveting, and I think the more we explore it, the better. So I would I would love to continue on with the narrative and, and keep hearing the story. Okay. Um, as I mentioned, it was dangerous from the time they took off to the time they landed. Uh, at, the, at the peak, there were 40 bomb groups in uh, the 8th Air Force located in an area in and around uh, East Anglia, England, which is about the size of Vermont. And these air bases were just located only about 5, 10 miles apart. So on the day of a mission, you had all these bombers taken off from these air bases all at the same time. And back then there was no air traffic control. There was no uh, radar. Everything was based on visual sight. And usually the weather in England was either uh, you know, overcast with clouds or socked in with fog. And they couldn't see anything until they got above the cloud layer. So mid-air uh, collisions were not uncommon. Then they had to form up. Um, and for all these bombers to form up and uh, it took about an hour to two hours before they could even head across the English Channel to begin their mission. And then they had to deal with the elements. Uh, these planes weren't pressurized, so above 10,000 feet they had to go on oxygen or else they'd pass out and die. And also at the altitude that they were flying, it was minus 40 to 60 degrees below zero. So it was freezing up there and frostbite was a huge problem. Uh, many airmen were hospitalized for lengthy periods of time with serious frostbite in injuries. And one of my dad's uh, waist gunners was in the hospital for two and a half months 
um, because of the seriousness of the injuries he suffered. And then they had to deal with enemy fighters. Uh, the Germans had radar stations uh, set up along the coast of uh, Germany, so they knew when these bomber formations were coming and then send up their air force to uh, intercept them. Their uh, German air force was called the Luftwaffe. And uh, they'd have to deal with enemy fighters. Um, and then when they neared the target, when they started their bomb run, uh, they had to, the next thing they dealt, had dealt with was anti-aircraft fire or flak. Uh, flak was the abbreviation for the German word for aircraft defense cannon. And uh, those weapons were deadly. They fired about 20 shells a minute and they were calibrated to explode at the same altitude that the bombers were flying. And these shells were filled with all different shapes and sizes of a razor sharp metal called shrapnel. That when the shells exploded would burst out hundreds of feet and easily penetrate the thin aluminum skin of those, of those bombers. Uh, let alone, you know, the flesh and bone of, uh, of, of the crew. And once, once they got right in among those, uh, that, those uh, shells exploding, you know, the, the explosions were, you know, ear shattering. Um, the concussions from these shells exploding would just violently rock the ship. He, my dad told me that even though it was so freezing at that altitude and during these bomb runs, he'd just, he'd be sweating profusely and be dripping wet with the adrenaline running through his body. And then uh, once uh, the bombers dropped their bombs, uh, the planes that made it through the bomb run, they would do a, make a big turn and head to another, a designated point called a rally point where the, the bombers that made it through would try to form up again, then head back to their bases in England where you know, once again, they'd be faced with that uh, German fighters attacking them. So it, it was, uh, you know, it was brutal. And every time these guys went up on these missions, they never knew if the, the, it was going to be their last one. Uh, then the early part of the war, it was uh, the 8th Air Force took devastating losses, uh, particularly in 1943 was the worst year. Um, at the beginning of the war, there was no mission limit for these combat crews. They just, just kept flying. And the morale started going into the, the tank because they knew they'd never make it back home. They'd either be killed or uh, they'd be shot down and become prisoners of war. And finally, the 8th Air Force uh, realized that predicament. And in the spring of 1943, they, they implemented a mission limit of 25. If somebody completed 25 combat missions, they were able to go back to uh, the States. But even though they did that, it was statistically impossible to complete 25 missions. The average number of missions flown in 1943 before being shot down was only six. But yet these guys would keep going back up, you know, on these missions, uh, uh, you know, seeing their buddies being killed or, or what have you. So it, it, it was, those guys were, were, were something else. And uh, I was on a mission to uh, Frankfurt, Germany on February 8th of 1944, uh, my dad's plane, my dad's plane was named the Susan Ruth after my oldest sister, because he was the first pilot of the plane. And as such, he was the commander of the crew and, uh, and the plane. Uh, B-17 had a, a 10-man crew. There were four officers, uh, the first pilot, which my dad was, and a co-pilot, and a navigator, a bombardier. And then there were six enlisted men who were mainly mainly gunners. Um, so his plane was named the Susan Ruth that dropped its bomb successfully, uh, but their Bombay doors got hit by flak and they couldn't get them back up. And as a result, that caused a drag on the plane um, that lot, they started losing airspeed and they started to lag behind the formation. And that's the worst thing that could happen to a bomber because um, they, they flew in formations called a combat box formation and tight formations. And when you were in these tight formations, uh, you had protection from the group. You know, it was kind of like a herd of animals. You know, if one starts lagging behind, the wolves or lions will just, you know, come in for the kill. And that was kind of the way it is for the bomber formations. Because those bombers, uh, those B-17s, they were very heavily armed. They had 13 50 caliber machine guns on each plane. So they could put out a tremendous amount of firepower. 
And so the theory was uh, flying in these type formations, all this interlocking or overlapping uh, uh, firepower could defend themselves from the Luftwaffe. Um, so if you lag got out of that formation, um, you were uh, pretty much a dead duck. And that's what happened to my, my uh, the, the, the Susan Ruth. Uh, they were singled out by two Falkworth uh, 190 fighters and uh, who came in for the kill and uh, shot my dad's plane down. Uh, two of the crew of the 10-man crew were killed in the plane. And then the other eight were able to bail out successfully. But both those German pilots or planes were both shot down. One was piloted by Siegfried Merrick and his plane crashed and he was killed in the plane. And the other was piloted by Hans Berger, who was able to bail out and he made it through the war. Um, kind of a funny story. When I was doing my research, you know, during these uh, three years, one day my wife, Glenda, asked me just real nonchalantly, well, why don't you try to find the German pilot that shot down your dad's plane? And I thought to myself, well, she doesn't know what she's talking about. She's ignorant. You know, there's a crazy idea. There's no way in the world I could do that. It'd be impossible. Like, But like a good husband, I did what she told me to do. And I found Hans Berger. And fortunately for me, he became a translator after the war. So he speaks English. And he gave, gave me some wonderful insight that's in the book about what it's like to go up against the Eighth Air Force. And Hans Berger is still alive today. He's 95 years old, lives in uh Munich, Germany, and I'm going to go visit him in September. Uh, again, it'll probably be the last time I ever get to see him. So uh, uh, as I mentioned, in August, I'm going over to England uh, to visit the 306 uh, Bomb Group uh, Museum. Their air base is no longer there, but there's a nice little uh, museum. And then I'm going to visit other uh, eight Air Force Bomb Group uh, memorials and museums uh, in the area. And then from there, I'm going over to Belgium for the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Belgium, which is uh, September 2nd. And then uh, they'll also have ceremonies to memorials they've erected to my dad's crew. I'd attend those. Uh, and then I'm gonna go down to Normandy and to the D-Day beaches. And then after that, go to Munich to, to visit Hans. So that's gonna be a, a big trip coming up in about, about three weeks or, or, or so. Again, that'll uh, keep me busy. Um, after my dad's plane uh, was attacked, I mentioned that the other eight crewmen bailed out. And my, when my dad bailed, he was the last one to bail out of the crew, uh, out of the plane. And he, the plane was on fire and uh, he didn't know what happened to any of the uh, guys who were in the back of the plane, those, mainly those enlisted men, the gunners, because uh, the the four officers were in the fr front of the plane and the nose of the plane was the bombardier and the navigator and then up above them in the cockpit were the two pilots. So he knew that they bailed out successfully, but uh, since he was the last one to bail out, he and the plane actually came down in Belgium and the other guys that were able to bail out came down in France. It was right on the French-Belgian border. And when my dad came down, uh, just in, in Belgium, north of the border, he came down in some trees and his parachute got hung up in the branches and he couldn't get down. He was dangling 20 feet off the ground. But fortunately for him, a couple of young Belgian men came to his rescue. Uh, their names are Raymond Durvan and uh, Henri Franken. Uh, they saw his predicament. Uh, they went back to uh, the Durvan farmhouse, got a ladder and rope and helped my dad down the tree. It was about one o'clock in the afternoon. They just told, told him to stay put and hide because they thought it'd be too dangerous to try to move him in daylight with German patrols combing the areas looking for these guys. So uh, uh, he did that. That night uh, they came back and got him and they took him to the Durvan farmhouse. Uh, my my dad had some um, minor burn wounds from the flames in the cockpit and some minor shrapnel wounds uh, in one leg. Uh, so they bandaged him up uh, there. And you know, he just stayed there one night because they thought it was too dangerous for him to stay there any longer than that with those German patrols you know, still in the area. So the next night, a Belgium customs officer named Paul Tilcan came on a tandem bicycle to, pick him up and take him to another location, a safer location. And so they, uh, it was middle of the night, pitch black, it was raining, uh, they hop on the bike. My dad could only pedal with his, uh, with his good leg. 
Um, and they came to a hill and they couldn't pedal up the hill anymore. So they started pushing the bike up the hill. When they got to the top of the hill, there's a little cafe cabaret there and the, the lights were on, the music was playing. People were talking loudly, laughing. And all of a sudden two German officers come out the front door with their arms around these young girls. One of them comes up to my dad and asks him for a light for a cigarette. Well, my dad can't speak French or, or English, uh, German or French at that point, but fortunately Paul could and he lit the guy's cigarette and uh, they went on their way. My dad said that these German officers were too snockered. That's the term he liked to use and too interested in these young girls to pay too much attention to a couple of yokels, you know, pushing this bike up in, in the middle of the night. And from there, he, my dad was moved from place to place to place. Uh, how long he stayed in a given uh, house, uh, depending on how brave the Belgian people were who lived there and how brave the Belgium underground thought it was for him to stay there. He might stay one night, he might spend six weeks. And the people who hid my dad and other members of Down Airmen for that matter were unbelievably brave people. They risked not only their lives, but those of their friends and their family. Because if the German secret police, the Gestapo, found out about it, they'd be arrested, tortured, and either shot or sent to concentration camps. And some of the people who helped my dad and other members of his crew met that fate. Um, they, they, my dad owed, owed his life to those people. He said that they would let him sleep in their bed. They'd sleep on the floor. They'd give him the, the, the larger portion of, of food. Uh, unbelievable. And there were, there's instances described in the book where my dad was almost discovered uh, by the Gestapo on this uh, one occasion. Uh, he was staying at the home of uh, Maurice and Ghislaine Bayou. It, it was with them that they, he wrote his diary while he was missing in action. And the Gestapo pounded on the door and uh, Maurice told my dad to go up on the, on the climb out of the attic and, and go up on the roof. And then when it was safe, he'd come back and got him. Well, he never came back the entire night. My dad spent the entire night um, on that roof. And uh, in my travels to Belgium, I've been in these homes, uh, both at Durvan Farmhouse and uh, the Bayou House, which is in Charleroi, Belgium. And, you know, that, uh, that roof he climbed on was really steep. It's a, a tile roof, and you crawl out of this little tiny window in the attic to get up on it, you know, in the middle of the night, that had to be pretty scary just in itself. I can't imagine spending the whole night out up there in that roof was really uncomfortable. Um, but uh, Maurice thought it was too dangerous for him to come back down into the, to the house in case the Gestapo came, came back. And you know, that was really stressful for my, for my, for my father. Here he is, and his plane was attacked, it's on fire, he has to I uh, has to bail out. He comes down in a foreign country, has no idea where he is, uh, doesn't know what happened to his buddies on the crew, can't communicate with the U.S. military. He's being helped by total strangers who he initially can't communicate with because he can't speak French. He has a little French uh, English dictionary in his evasion kit that he can kind of refer to. And any one of these people could be a collaborator and turn him over to the Gestapo. So finally, my dad got tired of hiding. Um, word came that the Allies had landed at Normandy on Normandy on June 6th, the 43, uh, I mean, 44. And he wanted to get back in the fights. Um, unlike most airmen, he had that year's infantry training up uh, at Fort Lewis, so he knew how to fight on the ground. So he decided uh, he wanted to join the French resistance and his helpers tried to talk him out of this because it was way too dangerous because he could get killed fighting, or if he got captured by the Gestapo, they would have sh shot him out right on the spot for being a spy or a, or a terrorist. You know, they tried to convince him to just, you know, stay hidden uh, there in Belgium and just wait until the U.S. troops came up uh, through France after D-Day to get liberated. But he said uh, he was going with or without their help. And so, uh, he kind of forced, I guess, one of uh, his helpers, Amy Cools is her name. Uh, they got on bicycles and just uh, she just escorted him across the, the border into France. And he hooked up with this French resistance uh, unit. The French resistance was called the uh, Mackey. And they were made up of small independence, ragtag guerrilla groups uh, all across uh, France. Uh, they harassed the Germans. They would uh, disrupt communications. Uh, 
sabotage railroad lines, attack convoys, assassinate German officers. And they got their instructions uh, through coded messages from the BB from the British through coded messages over the BBC. And my dad said the, the information they gave him was unbelievably accurate. If they said a German patrol was going to be coming down this road on this day at this time, sure enough, they would be. And that was as a result of the British breaking the uh, German Enigma code and knowing everything that the Germans were, were up to. And then they were also supplied by the British through airdrops. And there's a number of uh, encounters described in the book from my dad and the Mackey group uh, had with, with, with Germans are pretty exciting. And uh, I went to a farmhouse uh, there just in, in Northern France, which I'll visit again uh, in, when I go back uh, in August, in September, uh, where the French resistance unit stayed uh, for a while. Yeah. He stayed in this upper room way on top of the, of the farmhouse, but he had a pretty good view of the road down below. And on one occasion, it was early in the morning and he was shaving, had you know shaving cream on his face, dressed in his shivvies and the sh skivvies and this German patrol comes up the, the road. So he had to jump out the, the second story. Uh, there weren't really windows. It's uh, big openings in the back of the, the farmhouse where the grainy was, where they threw out the grain to feed the animals and had to hightail it into the woods so he wouldn't get captured. And I've been up in that little room where he was hidden. So very exciting uh, to, to be these places where history was, was made with my dad. And then uh, seven months after he bailed out, um, word filtered uh, to the group that there were US troops in a nearby village of Trelon, France. So he uh, walked over into town, uh, into the town square, actually it was elements of Patton's third army that which had come up through France after D-Day, went up to an army major, identified himself. He was interrogated to make sure he was who he said he was. Uh, when they, they were satisfied, he uh, got on a, a troop caravan, actually. They were taking German prisoners to Paris. So he got to Paris and then got on a, a transport and got back to England where he sent a Western Union telegram to my mother saying that he was fit as a, fit as a fiddle and to bank the money. Uh, he had all that back pay from, you know, seven months while he was missing in action. So uh, that was a happy day for my, a glorious day for my mother, actually. My other sister was born when my dad was missing in action. Um, so my mother was back here in California with a one-year-old baby girl, uh, Susan, uh, infant girl, Nancy, not, not knowing if she'd ever see her husband again until she got that telegram when he got back to, to England. So that was a, a happy day <laughs> uh, for, my, for my, my, my folks. And then... Uh, the Air Force had a rule that if you were shot down over occupied territory and aided by the underground, that you couldn't fly again because they were worried if you were went back into combat, shot down a second time and were captured by the Germans and tortured, that you give up the identity of the people that helped you the first time. So my dad was sent back to the States where he became a B-17 flight instructor for the remainder of the war. Um, when the war ended in May, uh, May 8th, or at least in, the, in Europe on May 8th of, of, of 45. And then uh, in September 45 in, uh, in the Pacific against, against Japan. So that's kind of the story of my dad. You know, it, I, I don't know how many guys would have decided to join the French resistance and fight against the Germans. Uh, that took an unbelievably amount of bravery and courage to do that and not just stay hunkered down and, and hidden because that was a, an exceedingly dangerous uh, thing for him to do. And uh, I, uh, unfortunately, I never really asked him specifically why he did that. But I think he just thought it was his duty. Um, other Americans were fighting and dying and uh, he felt that, uh, you know, he should join him. He was no, and that's the way those guys were. If he's talked to World War II veterans today, they'll, they just act like it was no big deal. You know, they said, well, you know, the country was at war. We had a job to do. So we, just, we went over there and did it. And then we came back home and got on with our lives. You know, it's, it was a, a, amazing uh, people. You know, back then, 
the United States was a lot different place. Uh, it was very uh, rural back then. Most of the people lived out in the country, unlike today, where most people, you know, live in cities or, you know, even along the coasts. You know, you know, it was a rural, you know, a nation, you know, lots of farmers. Um, and these guys who went to war were just young kids. Really, they're in their late teens, early 20s, just out of high school. A lot of these guys had never been out of their county, you know, let alone finding themselves halfway around the world, you know, fighting a war. They'd never been away from home or their mothers or their, you know, their families, uh, the scrutiny of, of, of that. And here they're totally independent all of a sudden, you know, they, you know, booze, cigarettes, sex, you know, anything goes, there's no one to stop them from doing any of that. So it was a, it was also a very exciting time for these guys. Uh, London was, you know, there was no city in the world like London at that time. That was the, the biggest, most metropolitan city in the world. And to be there, uh, was was pretty exciting for those guys, uh, you know. And even my dad admitted that, even though you're facing you know death uh, all the time, so it's uh, you know you get close when you're you know fighting combat with these these crews or your platoon or whatever it, it happened to be. So just uh, just an amazing story. There's over. Uh, a couple things about the book. There's over 200 time, uh, time period photographs in the book. What make, makes it unique because you can visualize everything you're reading about. Uh, lots of the pictures sent to my dad by his helpers after the war or many pictures provided me by uh, two Belgium gentlemen. I probably wouldn't have written the book it was, if it wasn't for these two Belgium gentlemen who were young boys during the war who were great, greatly affected by it. They saw firsthand the atrocities committed uh, by the Nazis against their family and friends. And later on in, the, in life, they became local historians. Their names were Dr. Paul Delahaye and Jacques Lalot. And they interviewed these Belgian people who were members of the Belgium underground about events that took place involving my dad and his crew. And they documented their testimony and they gave me unbelievably detailed information and in, in pictures uh, about events that would have been lost forever without their dedicated research. So I owe them a huge debt. Uh, Dr. Paul Delahaye is no longer with us. He died in 2013 at the age of, uh, of 82. And uh, in 1984, uh, he was the founder of what was, what was then called the Belgium American Foundation. As you can see, I, I'm talking away here. I'm not even giving you a chance <laughs> to, to say anything. I, um, but he formed this association uh, to remember and honor the American troops that liberated their country from Nazi oppression and Nazi occupation. And they erected a number of memorials in the area uh, to do that. And they have ceremonies at these memorials on the anniversary dates uh, of those events. And in uh, 1989, they erected a memorial to my dad and his crew, to the crew of the Susan Ruth. And my dad went over for the dedication of the memorial with uh, the three other crew members that were still living at the time. Of the 10-man crew, five of them made it back home from the war, but five of them were killed over there. Uh, two of them are still buried in, in Europe. They went over with their, uh, their, their spouses. And, and, and like most World War II veterans, my dad didn't talk much about the war uh, when I was young. But when he went back for the dedication, there he was reunited with all these Belgian people that hit him during the war, saw those, you know, revisited those homes where he was hidden in. That brought it all back. And he started talking about it after that. And then my first trip to Belgium was in 1994 with my parents. And that's when it became personal for me because I saw all those places firsthand, you know, especially going with my father. He was uh, kind of the master of our main speaker, keynote speaker. And the Belgian people are wonderful people. To this day, they're still so thankful and so grateful for the Americans coming to their res uh, rescue. And they do a great job of educating the younger generations too, to honor and remember. When I went over with my, with my parents in 94, uh, they couldn't have treated him any better than if, if he was the president of the United States. It was, I mean, there was one time we were late. They, they put up all these big tents 
that seat hundreds of people where they have band concerts and lunches and uh, dinners and dancing. And, and, and my dad, we were late to one of the performances this one time. And when we walked in this tent, all the hundreds of people stood up and started applauding my dad. It was just, wow. I get chills just talking about it. You know, just uh, treating him like a king. And then when I go back, I went by my, the second trip uh, with me. My parents weren't well enough to travel at that time in 2004 for the 60th anniversary. You know, they treated me like I was one of the uh, U.S. airmen, you know, and it was embarrassing that, you know, they were treating me so well that, you know, I'm just the son of the, the pilot. I didn't do anything. But that's the way they feel. And so I made some uh, lifelong friends over there. I'm really looking forward to seeing them. Jacques Lowe is, uh, is, is he's, uh, Jacques is, I think, 82 or 83 now, but he's going strong. So uh, look forward to seeing him. And then Paul Delahaye's uh, uh, two daughters and son uh, kind of spearhead the association. Now they changed the name to the Duty to Remember Association because they wanted to remember just not the Americans, but the Canadians and the British and, you know, all the different uh, nations that came over and helped liberate their, their country. And they're, they're wonderful events. Uh, they last the several days where they have, you know, like I mentioned, band concerts and dances and dinners. And uh, at those, the local beer, the Chimay just flows and everyone has a, a grand time. And then the, the more, <laughs> you know, uh, serious uh, or solemn occasions they have these ceremonies at the various memorials um you know one will be at my dad's memorial one will be at the memorial at Sendron, which is right at the french belgian border where the u.s ninth infantry crossed over the wartraz river from france into belgium on september 2nd to liberate the country to liberate the first village in the country and then there's another memorial to uh, some of my dad's crew who were killed and some of the other airmen from other B-17s that were killed uh, at another location, which was a real tragedy. And uh, this year, uh, my entire family's going. There's 15 of us. Uh, my kids, uh, my sister, her kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, and uh Relatives of five other members uh, of the of the Susan Ruth crew are coming over, and uh, it's nice that a lot of them uh, on this uh, anniversary are going to be grandchildren uh, of some of the crew that have never been there, and they'll see all that, and uh, so they they have no idea what they're in store for until you go to these. They're so moving and so emotional and so much fun. So that that'll be terrific, and. Uh, other people of, uh, who are interested in Belgium and the Netherlands. Uh, it's interesting that they have a number of American cemeteries in, in Europe. And they have a couple in Belgium and one in the Netherlands. And some of the airmen that were killed over there are still buried in those, uh, those cemeteries. And they have uh, every grave at those cemeteries are adopted by local people to honor and remember the, the man who lies in that grave. And on certain uh, occasions and holidays and what have you, they come and bring flowers and they some, place them on the grave. So they call them uh, adopters, grave adopters. And some of them are coming down from Belgium and the Netherlands uh, to honor those men who were killed, who they never met and didn't know, but just know their story. So it, it's just a, a grand thing. And then we have uh, all of my dad's helpers, all the Belgian people uh, who were in the underground at the time they're all gone but some of their uh relatives you know and ancestors so with us and they come you know relatives of people that hid, hid my dad or uh, other members of his crew and you know we become a family it's just a wonderful wonderful thing wow. <laughs> that's truly incredible and it, it it's so moving to hear how all of the 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 people um who your dad interacted with when he was shot down. I mean, how much they sacrificed to help and, and how grateful they are for, you know, for, for him helping them. And, you know, that's that spirit of, of cooperation and sacrifice. I mean, just 
the ultimate sacrifice in, in a lot of ways. I mean, that is, that's really inspirational. Now, when I have two, two questions that, that I really want to learn more about when your dad came back and you got to interact with him, um, how much of this did you get to talk about with him? And, and I know you talked about how before that uh, memorial, before he was around his, uh, all, all of his buddies, um, you know, maybe he was a, a bit more reserved, but then, you know, did, did, how much did y'all really talk about it? What was that like? Um, not a lot when I was young. I mean, I was, because I was born and grew up, you know, right after the war at that time, you know, there were all these war movies that, you know, were out in the, in the fifties about it. You know, I loved watching those World War II movies and, um, my parents made me read. And so I, I, I read books about World War II or, and uh, so I was always really interested in, uh, me and my buddies, when we were little, we used to play army all the time, um, you know, with these fake uh, guns. And we'd go to the army surplus stores and buy helmets and canteens and backpacks. And then my dad brought his uh, uniforms home and uh, I would put on his uh, some of those and uh, we'd go in vacant lots, you know, back there where there were lots of vacant lots. And there was lots of buildings so you could, you know, go in these uh these wooden frame apartment buildings, you know, and pretend, you know, there were so many places to play back when I was a kid. Um, so we played it a lot, but my dad and I didn't really talk about it at all. I just knew the basics. I, uh, I knew that he was a B-17 pilot. He was stationed in England. His plane was named after my sister. He flew bombing missions. He was shot down. He was missing in action for seven months and then, you know, came back. But I didn't know any any details. And uh, my dad did see uh, of the crew members that survived. Uh, he did see them occasionally. But uh, when they would come over to the house again, I was so young, I had you know no interest in it. You know, my parents would make me come out of my bedroom playing with my toys and say you know shake say hello and shake hands with you know Mister Mrs. Musial or or whatever. And like okay, you know and you know, like an idiot, you know, when you're young, you just don't realize these things, you're into what you're doing. And even when you get older, you know, you're, you're going to college, you know, you get married, you, you know, you have a job, you're starting to raise a family. And you know, I hear this from so many people. I'm so fortunate that I am blessed that I know so much about my dad and his World War II history. Most people I run into and, and talk to know very little about their veteran because they didn't talk about it. Um, um, I always like to hear from people who read the book that, you know, at least they'll say, well, my dad didn't talk about it by, by reading your book, you know, I gained an appreciation and knowledge, you know, for what they did go through. Um, and so it really wasn't until my dad started going back to Belgium that he started talking about it, uh, you know, until I got, to, well, in, uh, uh, was it 94, you know, it wasn't until I was in my, my 40s till you know, I really started appreciating it. Um, you know, that first trip to Belgium in 94, you know, was a real uh, eye-opener for me. And then, uh, you know, one of my wife and I got went back in 2004. So it wasn't, it wasn't until later in life. Uh, and then... Uh, in 2004, I went up for a ride in a B-17 uh, just to get a little taste uh, of what it felt like to be in a, a B-17, which is an absolutely thrilling thing to do. I've, I've been up again since then just to get a little taste. It just gives you chills, you know, going up in those old, you don't realize if you've never been in a B-17, you have no idea how cramped it is. It's more crowded than a submarine in a B-17. Um, and so just gradually as I got more settled, you know, in life. I just, my appreciation just grew and grew and grew. But, you know, growing up, not, not much. My dad and I were close. Um, he was a great dad. Um, my sister and I, my sisters and I always compared him to John Wayne. He was that type of, he was, you know, a tall guy. He was six foot three, rugged guy, no nonsense guy. Uh, either John Wayne or, 
you know, you have to be old enough to remember the TV show Gunsmoke, but J James Arnest, Marshall Dillon, you know, we compared him to those two guys, but he was a very, even though he was you know, tough, he was, you know, disciplinarian. Uh, he loves, you know, he was a loving father. You know, he coached my little league baseball team, you know, came to my, all my sporting events, you know, and supported me when I was in, when in, in high school. And so we had a, we had a real good, re, good relationship. And uh, my dad wasn't the last crew member to die, but he was the oldest uh, at 91. He died in 2007. The last Susan Ruth crew member died in 2010. So he had a long, uh, rich life and, uh, um, you know, no regrets from that, that standpoint. Wow. So Steve, I, I want to thank you so much for, uh, for, for coming on to the show and, um, for, for sharing, you know, all of this, I think it's so important and, uh, you know, I'm very grateful that, that you would, you know, take the time to, to share this kind of stuff because of how important it really is. Uh, so I want to say thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. I, I appreciate it. You know, any chance I get to tell the story and, you know, and the, and the book's not just about my dad, it's about what happened to each member of the crew and about all those courageous Belgian people that uh, risked their lives to help them. And really in an overall sense, it's to all the men of the eighth air force and, and all of the, the men who fought during World War II. There were 16 million uh, veterans at the end of the war. And that number has been rapidly declining ever since the end. And there's only about 3% of those men still with us. Uh, there's different figures. It's about 350 to 400 of those veterans are passing away every day and soon we won't have them. And unless their stories are told, they'll be lost forever. So, um, it's like I say, it, it's what I do, what I do, and I have a passion for it. And, uh, you know, it's been five years now that I've been doing this. How long I'll continue doing this, uh, I, I don't know. But uh, I, I love meeting lots of people, and I get to meet, I'm fortunate to meet a lot of veterans uh, as well. So uh, thanks again for having me on on the, on the show, uh, Ben. My, one of my youngest uh, grandkids is named Ben. Well, <clears throat> the honor's truly mine, so... Thank you very much. And uh, to everybody who's watching and listening, I want to thank y'all very much. Uh, you know, y'all's time is very valuable too. So I'm, I'm very grateful that y'all would choose to, to stay with us until the end and, you know, really be a part of this story too, because it's important for all of us, no matter what corner of the globe you're in, uh, it, it has affected you in some way. And you know, I think history is tremendously important to know. So thanks for being a part of it. And I will see y'all on the next episode. Take care now.